Predicting the weather is something humanity has tried to do for ages. We've come a long way from not knowing whether it's going to rain tomorrow to being able to reliably generate a weekly forecast. But it is still quite hard. Today's episode covers the challenges of using data science for meteorology and the modern tools that have made life easier for data-driven meteorologists. One tool the discussion centers on is matplotlib, a plotting tool for Python inspired by MATLAB. Matplotlib is a plotting library for the Python programming language. Ben Root is a core member of the Matplotlib development team. He has a master's in meteorology and works as a scientific programmer for Atmospheric and Environmental Research Incorporated. Ben, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, great to be here. What is Matplotlib? Well, Matplotlib uh, is a plotting library that, uh, as you said, for Python li- language that uh, is, is more targeted for producing scientific publication quality type plots. So the things you would sort of see in papers and journals and on um, presentations and such. But you could use it for a lot more than just that. But that, that's the uh, key focus is to help scientists uh, produce plots uh, very, very easily on a wide range of platforms and wide range of outputs. Why are visual tools like Matplotlib so important for communicating data effectively in these publications? Well, I I don't know about you, but I my eyes just roll whenever I see you know a table just full of numbers and stuff. They don't mean anything to me. I just don't immediately grok it. But if I see a line plot, the same exact data. But the line mm-hmm. plot, I get it right away. I, I understand. I we're, we're inherently, us humans, we evolved to be visual uh, entities. We, we take in our environment mostly through our eyes. So we're just so used to viewing information that way that it just makes sense to present things that way. And I think this is like growing in popularity. You see many data-driven news publications I think about like 538, for example, that are increasingly using data visualization tools. Have you seen media outlets using Matplotlib? Uh, Media outlets? No, I have not seen media outlets use Matplotlib specifically, but I have been seeing as I go to conferences and such um, and other places that uh, are more scientific driven, I have been seeing instances of Matplotlib there. It's uh, kind of telling it, you know, when you work with Matplotlib long enough that even though they don't say they're using Matplotlib, you can tell with Matplotlib through just the little quirks and stuff and how their presentations, the sort of details that I would probably notice as, as a core developer that most other people probably never would notice. So it's kind of funny that way. Give me an example of how someone might use Matplotlib. I was going to say, and it's just in the sense of like what uh, what would be a prototypical project, and at what stage would they uh, could they use the the project as is to uh, invoke Matplotlib to build a, a nice visualization? Oh well, <clears throat> I've seen uh, Matplotlib be used at every stage. Um, 
uh, of, of development of a project. Uh, for example, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you might want to use Matplotlib to help display the pretty, <clears throat> the pretty plots of your final product, or you know, showing your metrics of of, of your website, or show, you know, just simply showing your final data. But sometimes you just will run into a situation where you're writing up some software. And you're running into this bug and you just don't know what's wrong. And there's something in this one big, huge array of something. And what, you're just going to look through the numbers? No. Just pass it off to Matplotlib as part of your development process or your debugging process. And you display it. And now you can see, oh, this thing is spiking all the way up to... You know, infinity, or you know, this this got a value here that I totally didn't expect to ever see, or something like that. Yeah, then you can easily see what's going on. Mm, fascinating. So, like a debugging tool almost. Um, mm-hmm. So, Matplotlib was inspired by MATLAB. Is Matplotlib can it be thought of as an augmentation to? Python that essentially wraps Python in a MATLAB-like environment, or is that uh, is that too much? Is that too much of a statement? <sighs> so, yes, you're right. Uh, MATLAB was inspired by MATLAB, indeed. The original creator of MATLAB, John Hunter, uh, he was being frustrated by uh, some of the limitations in MATLAB. Uh, he was working on a, uh, a dissertation uh, for analyzing uh, ner- uh, pediatric uh, CAT scans or some ner- some neuro type thing, neuroimaging type thing. This was back in like 2000, and he just kept running into issues with MATLAB, just little stupid little Im- limitations here and there. And, he's, and then he picked up Python, but Python at that time didn't really have very good. Uh, graphing tools and uh, and it, and there was this other tool out there called IPython, Interactive Python, but it didn't really have much in terms of graphing tools either. But it was a really good em- environment that made him feel like it's sort of like you know MATLAB, but it still didn't have the graphing. So he worked on it and he and he tried to submit a patch to the IPython people for what was now matplotlib but that that patch got rejected um fernando perez the creator of ipython he was actually in the middle of his dissertation as well and he said i'm not accepting patches for six months so so he went so uh, john hunter went ahead and made matplotlib its own standalone project uh to uh display uh those images that he needs in the way that he needed it to uh so now getting to more to your question, does it wrap Python and stuff? He was, the syntax of matplotlib is inspired by MATLAB, uh, but there's certain aspects of it that he couldn't perfectly duplicate uh, because of the way how Python is structured. But he managed to capture a lot of it, and in some ways, I think actually made it better. Uh, but that's um, my opinion of MATLAB. I, I I also am a defector from MATLAB. Uh, do you, do you say yeah. that? Do you think MATLAB is feature bloated? Oh, feature bloated? No, I don't think. Actually, quite the. I think 
uh, MATLAB actually has, you know, the right amount of features and stuff like that. I think the problem with MATLAB is the, the basic design of a language itself uh, is fundamentally limiting and it's so geared towards mathematics and doing things like that, that then the sort of uh, higher level programming such as that, that you might want when you're putting together a system uh, such as doing string manipulation, command line argument handling, uh, f- you know, doing uh, function calls in a sane manner, organizing your uh, source code. Like MATLAB, you basically got one file, one function. That's it. You know, you, so you, so every function you want, you you got to have another file or you, you come up with the module type thing. But they're so complicated. And it's, it's not easy. Mm. So it sounds like maybe this is the the criticisms of MATLAB or the warts of MATLAB. It sounds like they have come out of the closed source nature of MATLAB. Would you say that's accurate? Um, I, or, is, or is MATLAB is closed source, right? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Uh, closed source in the sense that um, you are there are many aspects of the MATLAB code base that you can view, but they're all copyrighted and they're not licensed with an open source license. So there's lots of uh. code that you can view, but the core part of MATLAB, the real engine and stuff like that, yeah, that is completely closed source. You cannot see it. You cannot. And, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, the community can really provide a lot of feedback. And I think that's the key uh, with uh, a language like MATLAB is that its development is completely driven by the company rather than really getting good feedback and collaboration from a community. Now, yes, indeed, there is a community around MATLAB uh, for helping people develop code and things like that. But but the sort of but you don't really see that sort of stuff as you do see with, let's say, Python, where Python, you have the PEPs, the Python Enhancement Proposals, and with uh, other languages like C, C++, there's people submitting proposals to improve the language all the time. Hmm. And MATLAB, you don't really see that. And yes, MATLAB, they do make improvements, incremental improvements, stuff like that, but it's not coming from the community. It's more driven from one side, and so I feel that that's a bit of a detriment because you don't have everybody's voice involved. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, let's let's get back to to Matt Plotlib. Tell me about your involvement with the Matt Plotlib core development team. So, the way how uh, Matt Plotlib uh, does its development, obviously being an open source, it is through the community. So, we, for one thing, as always, at any point. Anyone can submit a patch or a wish list item or something to uh, the GitHub site, uh, our, our GitHub page, and ask for a particular feature or say, hey, I've been tinkering with this thing. Here's what I have so far for this feature I would really like. So that's where actually we get a lot of uh, contributions from. Uh, I actually don't write as much matplotlib code um, as I used to, not a lot of my time is actually spent reviewing these submissions from people outside of uh, 
people not of the core team. So that's where we probably get maybe about, you know, a good quarter of our uh, lines of code. Um, you know, as bad of a metric that is, but it, lines of code, probably, probably get about a quarter of them from outside con- uh, contributors like that. And then um, for the really, the, the meaty type uh, s- stuff, we have the core developers, and then we also have, you know, our uh, our repeat visitors, you know, the the, the people who are, you know, the, the people who contribute from time to time. They're not the core developers, but you know, they they got a niche here or there, or you know, they're actively uh, using Matplotlib, and so they tend to have some a lot of good ideas from time to time. So uh, th- they'll submit uh, some things, and they usually get accepted without uh, much work. The more meteor type stuff, um, we tend to do what we call MEPs, uh, Matplotlib Enhancement Proposals, where we really try to hash out uh, how it is we want to do something. Because Matplotlib, a lot of people depend on it to have a very stable API. And so we pride ourselves in, you know, if you wrote code to do something uh, to make it some particular plot or something. And this has actually go back to scientific computing and publication stuff. If you wrote code to make a plot, you should expect that code to still work two or three years later. Because, you know, even with the latest version of Matplotlib, or at least mm. with very little tweaks, because people need, you know, it often happens in, uh, when you're doing scientific publishing is that you, you'll You'll submit your paper, and it'll go through a few rounds of revisions, and then uh, it'll finally get accepted a year or two later. And then maybe a year after that, someone's going to contact you and go, um, I'm having you know trouble with this and that, or I got some new data. Could you help me try to get this thing, uh, you know, an update to the data set or something? Could you try to make a new pilot like that? You you don't want to be fussing around with you know a brand new Matplotlib API. You just want to pull out that script that you had already that worked and feed it the data and go. And so we really mm. pride ourselves in keeping that uh, backwards compatibility uh, for a decent um, amount of time. But then, tell me how you got involved with Matplotlib. Well, as I said earlier, I'm a defector from MATLAB. I <laughs> I, I um. I was, I, I, being a, a meteorologist, I was doing uh, plots of radar and, you know, the type of radar plots you see on TV, that's what called just reflectivities. But there are other plots, too. Uh, they're called Doppler velocities, and they're colored completely differently. And I was trying to display both of them at the same time, one with one color map and one with the other color map. And in MATLAB, you just can't do it. It's impossible to do. I've been told now possible, but at the time I was doing it, you just couldn't do it. And it was driving me utterly bonkers. And there were other issues such as trying to display uh, the counties because I needed to see, I, like I knew that there was a tornado that passed over such and such county at such and such time. And I'm looking at my image and I'm going, no, it's over this county, not that county. What's wrong? Is my data wrong? Is it... The display, I just couldn't be sure. And I and I couldn't inspect MATLAB all that well to be sure that it was displaying the, the stuff correctly. I 
could be sure that Matplotlib was doing it correctly. And so a co-worker uh, at the time, he was also an, a frequent contributor to Matplotlib, and he uh, started showing me some code to uh, to use. And I just and it looks so fami- so similar to MATLAB. And over the course of about a month or two, I just started converting all my MATLAB scripts uh, over to using Python and Matplotlib. And I just uh, fell in love with it. And and so there was that aspect, and that got me at, hooked as a user of Python and Matplotlib. But then, uh, what got me involved was well, Matplotlib isn't perfect, and I kept running into bugs. In Matplotlib, because I kept using Matplotlib, kept using it for uh, things that they weren't originally envisioning it to be used for. I kept pushing its boundaries and such, and I just kept submitting bug reports after bug reports. And then mm-hmm. eventually, I got comfortable enough with Python. I, I then started submitting patches, and eventually, when I submitted enough patches and suggestions for fi- you know enhancements and stuff like that, uh, finally, John Hunter he just said. That's it. We're giving you commit rights. You know, I it's so interesting because I find that this is how people tend to get involved in open source is they it's almost like a happenstance scratching their own itch sort of thing. You know, they just get they need something so bad uh, and then they just get fed up with it and they realize nobody else is going to do it. So they do it themselves. Exactly. And, um, and that's why I love open source because I'm able to scratch that itch meanwhile in a language like matlab i can't scratch that itch so it's kind of like you're stuck in a spacesuit or something you just can't scratch your own nose and it's just it's 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 frustrating and so that's why i always felt like switching over to python was very liberating it didn't have to be python it could have been another open source language but moving away from matlab was the more important thing for me was just get off of i i kept running into issues and i i can't i'm I'm perfectionist i just can't leave it alone so yes so you know you discussed making your way into matplotlib through your background in meteorology i don't think i've done any other shows with uh people at the intersection of software and meteorology. So I'd love to discuss this. Um, describe how you how you got involved in in uh, I mean I guess describe you are you were in meteorology first. Describe the point at which you had to start doing software engineering around meteorology. Software engineering. Now that's uh, I like to make a distinction between doing software and doing software engineering. I was doing software very early on. I would say probably my uh, my junior year in college, I was regularly writing up uh, code uh, to do odds and ends in uh, meteorology. For example, uh, at universe, uh, Penn State University, which where I graduated from, uh, they had what's called the, uh, the Campus Weather Service. And you know, I had the morning shift. I had to get up at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, trudge over to the to the to the weather building, and then had to go and do a forecast all by myself because how many other students are going to get up at three o'clock in the morning and do that? And uh, so I ended up making some Perl scripts to go and grab 
the various uh, forecast products from various places and then just display it on it, you know, in my, in my console. So I just have a quick heads up display of all the temperatures and, you know, what it's going to be cloudy and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, good. That, that was like probably my one, my first like major significant piece of code I made was just something that just made that job easier. Now I would not call that software engineering because guess what? I don't have that code anymore because I was at that time, I didn't know a darn thing about version control. I didn't know a darn thing about, uh, writing up comments. So even if I did have that code, I wouldn't understand one bit of it anymore, let alone the fact that it was Pearl. But um, <laughs> sorry, Pearl people out there. It was I, never truly understood in the first place. Yes. Yes. It was that much of a, ma- of a masterful language. Um, but, uh, but then, you know, I didn't understand all that stuff because I never uh, was taught that. And I never at that time ran into a situation where I would need it. And so it wasn't until a few years later that I then start paying the price of not knowing version control, not knowing uh, coding practices, uh, uh, you know, oh, I need to quickly change this software around to do something uh, fairly different. Did I code this? Did I architecture this piece of software correctly so that make that easy? You know, I didn't learn those things I wasn't taught those things. I learned those mistakes literally through the school of hard knocks. So I, I would then say I was doing software engineering by the time I was working on my master's. But even then, it still took me a while. And it wasn't until I started getting actually involved in Matplotlib and by seeing by the example of other people who were software engineers or at least had software engineering training that I then see – oh, if I were just simply to code this up this way, or if I were to just do these sort of, you know, practices, or to understand, you know, how to write good comments, so that way, six months from now, I understand what the heck I was thinking, you know, six months ago. Yeah, I then started to understand that better. Uh, Mm. And so I started writing up code better that way. And so I would say, my math... Around the time I worked on my master's, I was really starting to get heavily involved in writing up code as as being like I'm doing more coding than I am doing science in the, in how one might traditionally de- define science. Uh, so- and with with this with this effort uh, at the intersection of meteorology and software. Uh, you know, you got your master's degree and you wound up as a scientific programmer for Atmospheric and Environmental Research Incorporated. And throughout that work, I'm curious about the problems that you encountered with the scale of data that you uh, encounter when you're when you're working with weather data and atmospheric data, because there's almost an unlimited spigot of data. So I'm just curious how you think about the volume of that data. Well, to help put uh, just perspective, some people who may not realize just how much meteorological data there is, uh, you can basically divide out uh, the type of data that we have every day uh, as model data. So you probably would hear about the European model or you know the other sort of models that are available. Those are all uh, different weather models that run by different organizations and. They all produce output data, and you got to have 
know, data for, you know, every hour, every half hour or something like that. And it's for every single variable that at, at whatever resolution it is. So, you know, you're talking, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes of data uh, every hour. And then you have the observational data. So some people may have noticed that as you're driving along the highway off to the side, you might see some strange little structure, you know, that's only probably about, you know, 10 meters high or something like that. And it's, you know, that's a weather station. That's, that's known as an ASOS station, an automatic uh, surface observation station. And that thing, yeah, the amount of data that's coming out of that thing isn't huge, but we got thousands of those all over the country and all over around the world, uh, different types of stations. So you, uh, you have those sort of observational data. Then you got the radar data. Again, hundreds, hundreds of gigabytes every day from every single radar site. And there's about 120 of those for the NextRats system alone. Then you got the, the various uh, satellites. And again, you know, we're talking hundreds of gigabytes again every single day uh, from the GO satellites from the uh, from the polar orbiting satellites, you got unbelievable amounts of data. And operationally speaking, NOAA uh, is the National Weather Service, NOAA, and all that. They're fusing all that data together to make your daily forecast down to the hour, uh, down to you know thirty minutes, doing that fifteen minute you know. Uh, Tornado warnings and such, that stuff is continually being assimilated all the time. And that's just, and that's why, you know, when you hear about the supercomputers that are coming out, you know, I swear half the time the supercomputers that are coming out is for a particular organization, uh, for a particular uh, meteorological organization. So Europe or or the U.S. or Japan or China, they, they all have at the top of their charts a weather supercomputer, at least one of them. I know the U.S. has a couple of them. Uh, Europe has a couple as well. Uh, so we're always at the forefront of just massively fusing all this data together all the time. And that's just for the forecast. Forget about analytics and statistical post-processing. Uh, post you got hazards forecast. Uh, you got your logistics imp implementation. So, you know, you got a forecast of snow that's going to be going across New York and you got uh, a shipment that's going from uh, Massachusetts down to Pennsylvania. Can you get your analytics in such a way that you can optimize that uh, truck? So that way it doesn't get hampered by the travel or uh, flights, you know, uh, the airlines, they all employ meteorologists themselves to go through all this data and process right. all this data to make sure that the flights are least hampered by the weather because you can't change the weather, but you can change so, the flights. So, so I, I'd like to understand how this data from all these different sources gets collated and turned into API endpoints, I guess, or, or, um, I mean, you know, how, how, how is it, how is it accessible? Like, um, <laughs> Do you do you receive giant files, you know, in batches over FTP every morning from deprecated systems, or are you uh, getting constant streams in, uh, you know, just throughout the day, or you can ping an endpoint, or mm -hmm. give me an idea of the 
of the how the infrastructure for how weather data moves around the world. Yes. It was all of that. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> it, is an, it is an utter mess, uh, unfortunately. Right. Uh, by, it all depends on uh, which source you want the data and how quickly you want that data. So if you want radar data, you're going to be going to a completely different source, and uh, you may or may not have access to uh, – it, it may be somewhat difficult to get up to the minute – Thing you can get really easily up to the minute, like process stuff. But if you want the raw data, eh, you got to go and download it directly from a particular uh, service or whatever. There, there are a few different ways to do that. Um, but if you're okay with it being, let's say, six hours late, yeah, yeah, that's that's somewhat easy. Um, there's this uh, this system. Uh, why am I blanking on the name of it right now? Um, oh, it will come to me later. Um, the system that uh, that helps disseminate uh, the data, and actually is a bit of a funny story. The whole system was actually based off of how data was originally disseminated like 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, basically it was all just uh, phone calls, uh, and uh, and what uh, were called a DIFAX machines. These were the precursors to fax machines. And oh. yeah, it was this weird protocol for being able to do it. And they still use it. <laughs> they still use it as the basis because it it, it worked. And so you can actually pr- uh, send data through the stuff. Not not that we use DIFAX machines anymore. We 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 actually have computers at the ends of them instead of uh, fax machines. But uh, yeah, you get these data through that. And that's one particular system. But then, yeah, we have a whole bunch of data that you can get just through, uh, anyone can grab it off FTP. Um, so yeah, you have to keep querying this, the system for the files. It's not like to get pushed to you. Unlike the, the first system that, uh, I was talking about that I still can't think of the name of. Um, so you, uh, you have all these different systems, you and then, unfortunately, however, the organization of how all this data is, is just a complete, you know, uh, mismatch of things because different organizations, different divisions within NOAA and other uh, place, places are responsible for maintaining that data. Um, so and- how does it get collated and uh, joined and how- – you know, I think of I think of the weather, uh, the the way that weather is predicted as this collation and machine learning process. Um, how how does that how is that reliable if all of these uh, different data streams are are have different schemas and and are coming in at different times? How how is that orchestrated? So. There, there's for for doing forecasts. There's this concept called uh, data assimilation, and okay, there isn't any some magical system that just makes all this data magically, <laughs> you know, come together or anything like that. Uh, so that's that's how all those formats and stuff come in. There's a few standard formats that things go, and you know, we're talking about mostly image data, 
a bunch of point data. So you can break it down to basic concepts like that. And there's a few formats to work with. Um, so that's not totally difficult, especially when you're talking about operational type products where you have fixed feeds with known data. Yeah, you just code it up for each each one of those different feeds and you convert it all into a 2D, 3D, 4D array, whatever you want, or 1D array of points and things like that. Yeah, fine. That's, that isn't the terrible spot. The terrible spot is uh, dealing with uh, buggy data. Because, you know, those ASOS stations I was talking about by the highway, you know, you get a car crash into one of them, you know, and, you know, all of a sudden once one of the sensors starts putting out, you know, every, you know, every few days, you, you know, puts out an odd value, you know, got a negative 999 every so often. Or funny story about 10 or so years ago, uh, one of the ASOS stations in, uh, I think it was North Carolina, they had to put out a correction for the past year. Because apparently a frog was jumping into the uh, rain measuring thing every so often, and it would cause it to spike a rain measurement. It would <laughs> think that there was two inches of rain in the past five minutes. <laughs> and, oh, man. And so it, it took them about a year before they realized that, oh, it was doing that. Um, you get other sort of noisy data time. time. Uh, when the sun sets uh, or the sunrise, if a radar uh, site is at that particular moment looking at the sun, you have to throw out that data because the sun blinds it for a moment. It's rare, and that, that tends to happen at different points in the data processing thing, but there's a whole bunch of uh, data cleanup and such, and then you go and you assimilate it all, and you basically try to... It's like a giant puzzle where you may or may not have all the pieces, and so when you're missing some of the pieces... You look at all the data, you look at the other pieces around it, and you go, well, I, it, you know, these, it looks like you're in the middle of a field of flowers here, so I'm going to kind of draw my own puzzle piece right now and just kind of plug that in right now. That sort of data uh, assimilation, and that, uh, that uh, kind of helps go and make the weather forecast mm. that you guys use every day. Right. So let me ask you, I mean, uh, weather seems like one of these fields that – uh, can really take advantage of the decrease in in cost of computing, and you know, obviously, every business in the world can take advantage of AWS. But this is one of these things where it seems like the applications of of AWS and and just decreasing cloud storage in general, decreasing cost of cloud storage in general, uh, is it, you can really feel the impact of it. So. Have you felt like the accuracy of weather predictions has measurably improved over the last decade or so? Oh, oh, well, okay. You're asking two separate questions here. So, <laughs> I guess I am. I'm making an assumption and then asking a, a question, assuming that assumption is correct. Right. Um, yes, we know that uh, weather forecasting has improved on a whole bunch of different fronts. Um but one thing we have found, and as a matter of fact, uh, you may not know this particular week right now in January, uh, we are having what's known as the uh, the AMS uh, Annual Conference, the American Meteorological Society Annual Conference. And that's the big shindig for meteorologists. Uh, you know, it's the Comic Con, if you will, of meteorology. And uh, there were actually some very fascinating presentations that were given this week. Um, one 
finding that uh, just simply increasing the resolution of these models is not going to, while it would increase, the, it would decrease the error in the short term of, you know, a day or two, it doesn't increase what's known as the, the horizon of predictability. And there's a theoretical limit to how far ahead you can predict certain things. And just simply increasing the resolution of it really doesn't move that horizon at all. And But that horizon is like at two weeks and and such. And that's also based on, you know, are you talking about the daily type weather? Or are you talking about, you know, El Nino type stuff, El Nino and other large scale type features? You know, we can predict that stuff, sort of stuff out months ahead. But daily type weather? You got about a limit of about two weeks, and no, no matter how much computational power you throw at it, we're really not going to move that that two week limit. Um, you know, that's a theoretical thing. We haven't hit two weeks yet, but we're you know we're probably pretty decent now at you know seven days out, and you know we, mm. we stretch it out to ten days. You know, sometimes we get a pretty good forecast for ten days out, but seven days out, you know, we're we're getting pretty good at that. Uh, whereas you know when I was a kid. A five-day forecast was, you know, that was that was a laughing stock. You know, you you, you you know, you'd be pretty good for, you know, with a three-day forecast. But five days out, you know, you better not be planning your picnic. Um, but uh, what, but now you're talking about AWS, and there's actually it was a fascinating article uh, a few months ago in uh, BAMS, uh, the Bulletin of the American Geological Society, where they actually uh, analyze the potential of using cloud services like AWS for doing uh, numerical processing for mo- modeling. And it was interesting. If you were, and I'm going to say right now, no. With AWS and things like that, you're not really going to get uh, your bang for the buck as having your actual iron, your own actual you know supercomputer and working at it. What AWS and stuff will be very useful for is robust data dissemination. So making it easier for people to get data and to send data and to collect data, because then you you can, you know, if a site goes, if a location goes down and stuff, you just route it around to one of the other uh, regions or something like that. Whereas, you know, right now, you know, all, you know, we run this, the models in two places and the data all goes through pretty much the same pipe. And so if something goes wrong, you know, you're kind of hosed. Um, mm. So you get, so you gain robustness and such, but the problem with numerical computation is that though it's not like a lot of other data processing where, you know, once you use that array, you know, that, that piece of data in the array, you really don't need it again. And so when you get down to the actual chip, you know, you, know, you can hold a few pieces of data and do that operation, and then it leaves that that chip that uh, you know on chip cache, and that, that's fine. But with numerical processing with weather, these formulas are so complicated. You need that piece of data many many times, and mm-hmm. so it's going on and off that that chip many many times. So you're paying the penalty already on the iron. But then when you're on AWS, on the cloud services and such, you're paying more of a penalty because it's virtualized. Then on top of that, uh, when you're computing things point by point, you're usually computing derivatives and derivatives of derivatives. 
And so mm-hmm. that means you need data from your neighboring points. And those neighboring points may not be on the machine you're at. It may be in some other machine. And so you're talking about lots of uh, interconnections. And so usually with these supercomputers, it's a bit, you know, IO is your big uh, bottleneck. And and with AWS and other virtual virtualized cloud services and stuff, your IO is even worse. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So and I'm talking okay. about IO from, from, from RAM to chip and from sure. disk to RAM. I'm talking about all those IOs. And so, and you got all sorts of interconnections and you got just, you got to uh, have all these different uh, threads and processes talking to each other all the time. And you're talking about doing it over hundreds of chips. You're not going to get that on a single die. You're going to be having that spread across multiple machines that are all virtualized. Yeah. You, got a problem so they're finding that you can't run these numerical models very efficiently on services like aws but data dissemination and data and other sort of data cleaning and other and other sort of things like that that's where you can get some decent value okay um i want to talk in so we're talking you know abstractly about doing stuff with weather and data. Um, I'd like to talk more concretely about your work as a scientific programmer for Atmospheric and Environmental Research Incorporated. Can you take me through a typical day for you? Give me a description of the type of work that you're doing. Okay, so uh, the company I work for, uh, AER, um, they uh, primarily, uh, besides doing research uh, type work. You know, that's where the company started off as we're getting research grants and, you know, for things atmospheric and environmentally related uh, and completing those research grants through the uh, NSF. Uh, they also do a lot of work for insurance companies. So insurance companies, they get uh, insurance claims for damage to their roofs, they get insurance claim for damage to the cars, stuff that may be weather related, lightning strikes, hail, wind damage, uh, ice freezes and things like that. So insurance companies, they come to us and they, they for one, one aspect of it, they try to figure out, okay, in this region, how likely is it that su- such and such roof would get damaged? And so then they can, uh, w- with that sort of knowledge, they can then go through and figure out, okay, there's this much risk, so I'm going to set my premiums and you know do all the typical underwriting type stuff uh, that they would do. Other aspect of it is confirmation of claims. Uh, you know, is, is this claim uh, false? You know, uh, you know, can we detect fraud and things like that by, mm. you know, you know, someone puts in a claim for a hail, you know, hail damage, and we go and take a look at the data that we have, and we find, yeah, there was a hailstorm five miles from there, but this guy's taking advantage of the fact that there was hail nearby, but not at his location or something like that. You know, we might be able to detect things like that if it's systematic or things like that. Uh, so that can you tell me? Can you tell me a strange or exciting or interesting anecdote from 
uh, you know, just stuff you found from looking at weather data in such detail? Um, we have, <laughs> so a funny thing that we're starting to, uh, I was not the one to, to notice this. There's one of the other analysts that noticed this, um, that we would find that people were reporting, uh, some people would be reporting uh, damage at the uh, the first hailstorm of the I don't want to say the new year the first of whenever their their um, their premiums are reset you know for the year so their deductibles are reset but we will find that let's say that first storm or whatever was a rather weak storm you know it only produced like pea-sized hail or whatever but the you know they would report the damage then after their deductible had reset or, 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 or uh, something that so, <laughs> so the damage actually happened maybe three or four months earlier. Right. And we can detect that. We can see that there was a more significant storm at that location three or four months before. And we can go, um, this may have happened actually earlier because the sort of hail that came down, you know, at the time they're claiming wouldn't have caused this damage. So we're sort of seeing that pattern, whether or not it's really true or not, what the reason behind it, that's up for the insurance companies to figure out. But uh, so one, one of the analysts did notice that there was a bit of a spike in reports for the first storm after the year. And it's like, okay, but the first storm of the year is usually pretty weak. And yeah. So that, that, okay. Yeah. That's a fun little thing. Uh, no, that's, that's a really interesting story. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's fascinating. Um, so, you know, I'd like to talk some about the future, um, both in terms of uh, meteorology and uh, data science, and I guess I guess Matplotlib. Um, you know, we didn't we haven't talked too much about Matplotlib, I guess, except for the, for the beginning. So, um, tell me where what is the future of meteorology and data driven meteorology? <sighs> well, that's really hard to say because. Th- I think meteorology has always been at the forefront of uh, weather data and uh, data processing in general because it always has been pushing the edge. Uh, so it's kind of hard to say where is it going to go when we're already at the bleeding edge of things uh, for the most part. I think what's probably the better question to ask is about the meteorologists themselves. Where are they going? And what's the future meteorologist going to look like? And I think that is vastly changing because uh, as I discovered, as I was an undergraduate student, I I was slowly discovering how using uh, software and such to help me with my day-to-day task was making my job easier and making me way more productive. And... Uh, but yet at that time, the classes and stuff weren't emphasizing that they were teaching us how to use certain software tool, but they weren't Jasmine, (laughs) the cat, uh, I figured, yeah, uh, they weren't teaching us how to, they were teaching us how to use software tools that were made for meteorologists, but they weren't teaching us how to make the tools ourselves. I'm seeing that as changing. Uh, I'm finding, uh, for example, a lot of people are 
are grabbing on to uh, what's known as software carpentry. Uh, if you go to their website, softwarecarpentry.org, uh, fantastic uh, set of tutorials and stuff t- that are designed to teach scientists, not just meteorologists, but scientists, how to become, you know, follow good software engineering principles, version control, shell scripting, uh, learning how to use R or Python or you know, some other uh, useful uh, programming language to do their day-to-day scientific tasks and, you know, you know, and then relate, you know, teach it to them in such a way they can relate to. So, you know, teach version control as if it's like your logbook and, you know, teach, you know, that, you know, you keep your logs, you don't ever use a pencil in your logbook because you never, never erase the thing because that for version control gets kept like that. And then shell scripting, that's, you know, helping you to make it easy to, you know, run your, your experiments and things like that. And you can keep your log files as your experimental uh, output and your notes, things like that. So, uh, Software Carpentry uh, done a fantastic job of trying to teach scientists that. And so some uh, meteorology programs have actually started to adopt uh, some of those tutorials and such into some of their courses. And some, some places are actually starting to make uh, programming courses mandatory as part of graduation. And so I think that is a great thing that's starting to change. We're getting uh, the next generation of meteorologists are going to be much more computer savvy than, uh, and when I say computer savvy, I mean software savvy, in that they will be able to be handymans, if you will, uh, you know, that, that, that crazy neighbor of yours who's always tinkering in his garage and he always has, like, the weird thing come out. We're going to have meteorologists that are going to basically be like that. They're going to be <laughs> creating stuff and uh, making things that may or may not become the tool that creates your next forecast. Um, we're, we're, uh, but we're getting uh, – we're starting to get meteorologists to see – uh, how important that is for their uh, development plans. And I think that's where the future of meteorology is. It's in the meteorologists themselves. Mm, very interesting. Okay. Well, um, you know, I guess final question. Um, what are you working on right now with Matplotlib? So right now, Matplotlib, uh, we are in the process of, uh, getting ready for the big style change. We're going to be putting out Matplotlib 2.0 real soon. Hopefully, I know we we people who have been following Matplotlib, you know, we've been promising it for like the past six months or whatever. It, we will. It's just uh, it's a funny thing is uh, uh, some some people were saying how the uh, the rabbit holes they've been falling down were infested by uh, dragons, and I uh, and I said, well, they're uh, thinking of the of the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I said, "Well, there's some dragon holes that are, you know, you got to ra- watch out for the rabbits in those dragon holes too." So, <laughs> um, so yes, there's some uh, rabbit infected dragon holes uh, in the Matplotlib code. So as we were doing the big style change, we were finding all sorts of uh, bugs and such. So we want to get it right before we put stuff out. So my uh, big work right now is I'm. Re- uh, uh, Mike Jotboom, he uh, he 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 basically wrote like a quarter of Matplotlib, and so uh, he uh, did a major refactor of the uh, image 
process uh, the uh, image displaying uh, portion of matplotlib. And one of the big limitations always been it always had to be rectilinear. And, you know, you couldn't do a log scale. Well, you could sort of kind of do a log scale, but you had to do a trick first to make it work. Uh, or you couldn't do polar coordinates very well, or you couldn't, like, skew it and, you know, do other sort of weird transformations and stuff. After, after I'm finished reviewing it, which is what I'm doing, I'm reviewing the code, uh, we will be able to do arbitrary transformations on images, which is, and uh, image viewing will be faster and more mem- memory efficient because, man, those rabbit holes are nested. <laughs> There's a weird nah. network of rabbit holes under there. Um, and we were doing all sorts of inefficient stuff, and we were just flabbergasted when we actually started digging into some of that code. You know, you, know, you think you're really awesome 10 years ago when you wrote that, and then you look at that code and go, what were you thinking? Um, <laughs> so uh, there's that. Uh, that aspect uh, again. There's going to be lots of arguments over some of these style changes because you know some people just don't like change, and so we're going to be uh, going over that. Uh, a lot of discussions on that. There's uh, there's the new property cycling uh, stuff that I finished uh, a few months ago. Uh, we got to still work out some kinks in there. Uh, we have some some people that are proposing. Uh, a, a certain uh, notation for specifying colors, and you know, there's a big argument that's going to be coming up on that because personally, I don't think that the notation should be limited to just colors, but should also help make it easy to bring in, you know, line styles, so dashes, things like that, or uh, you know, what what the hatch fill should be or what the face color should be. I want to I want to be able to control a lot more things and so there can be the whole argument of well do we do just colors or do we do more than that you know what does the you know do we refer to this part of the uh, property cycle or do we refer to a whole bunch of stuff that we uh, have to hash out online and then of course there's just always the ongoing uh, every day people re- uh, sending in bug reports and us going, oh man, that's broken too? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, that's that's all super interesting. Um, ben, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. It's been fascinating talking to you about weather and Matplotlib and um, everything that's going on in that space. Mm-hmm. It's been great uh, talking with you too. <laughs>